Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. If you are happy with the way things are, if you own property, if your business is thriving, if existing social and religious institutions work in your favor, the last thing you want in your town is a prophet. A prophet brings news that God will bring an end to the current situation. A prophet warns of God's wrath and judgment. In fulfillment of the prophets, Jesus proclaims this judgment in the resurrection and the coming of the kingdom. Of course the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 23 to 28. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 357 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I had a professor of biblical studies and Jewish history who used to describe the Pharisees as the Democrats and the Sadducees as the Republicans. This made sense because the Pharisees were the erudite teaching class that were interested not in the temple cult, but in the movement of the Torah from the cult out to the synagogue so that people could focus on Judaism, not as a cultic religion ultimately, but as the study of Torah. And of course, the Pharisees succeeded on multiple levels in that movement. But the Sadducees, he used to call the Republicans because they were well off and very happy with the way things were. They didn't want anything to change. They had property. They had a good situation in the land. So why would you go and mess all that up with these highfalutin notions of a resurrection? We don't need a resurrection. We have everything we want right now. It's kind of the inverse of the pharaohs. We like what we have, so let's talk about eternal life and build giant pyramids so we can keep what we have. The same dynamic is going on here with these characters in the story. It's such an interesting way of looking at things, especially from a Jewish person, because the way that modern Jews understand themselves is as descendants of the Pharisees, that your professor would see this as a critique against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two groups of Jews, as opposed to this other group of Jews who followed Jesus. And in the end, we know there's not even a group of them. There's just Jesus in the New Testament. But the Pharisees, exactly, they were the ones who were about the synagogue and about bringing the teaching to the people wherever they might be. And there were Pharisees all over. And the Sadducees were really based in the temple. In the end, most historians and Jews believe that the 
rabbinic Jews, rabbinic Jewry that produced the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Midrash descended from the Pharisees and that the Sadducees disappeared. And you do hear some of the arguments between rabbinic Jews and Sadducees in the Mishnah, but that line of thinking of the Sadducees kind of disappears. So this text, we have to remember, was written after the destruction of the temple. And the Sadducees were really ensconced in the temple. With the temple gone, they lose their institutional base. The other piece, which you've mentioned a lot of times before, Father, is that the temple to continue to exist, had to accommodate the Romans somehow, which meant that these Sadducees had to somehow, compromise might be too strong a word, but somehow accommodate the Romans and the Romans' political beliefs and walk that line so that things would be okay. Now, remember, the whole dilemma we have entering into Jerusalem is who does Jerusalem belong to? the Jews, or the Romans. The Sadducees were very wary and savvy about this because the Sadducees were walking that line. They knew that Jerusalem belonged to the Jews, but at any moment the Romans could change that. The Sadducees really felt on the line. So the threat of Jesus is not like the Pharisees. The threat of Jesus against the Pharisees is who would own the teaching. Who would own the Torah? Who would own the interpretation of how we read Torah? But the Sadducees were all about who owns the institution, who owns the temple, who owns the sacrificial system, and ultimately, who owns the relationship with the Romans. You might say that the Sadducees were invested in property, and the Pharisees were invested in morality and ideology. It's not that the Pharisees are right in so far as they're erudite. It's that their intellect and focus on instruction was in a way their downfall because that was the root of their self-righteousness, whereas the Sadducees were a bit like the people of Israel under the critique of the minor prophets for clinging to possession out of fear of losing their security. At the end of the day, there's crossover in terms of the sin of both of these characters. But just like it's interesting that Matthew brought the Herodians in to explain what was at stake with Caesar's coin, now he's bringing the Sadducees in to delve a little bit deeper into the sociological dysfunction at the heart of this resistance against the kingdom. I mean, I can imagine the kind of threat that the discussion about the coin would have to the Sadducees. Note that it was the same day. We'll get into that, Father. But the fact that there was this discussion about what is one's duty to Caesar, that's something that really hit at the heart of the Sadducees because they could not function without some kind of compromise or detente with Caesar. Where the Herodians were a bit like the nobles in that old movie Braveheart— The Sadducees have a kind of Stockholm Syndrome where they literally see the benefits in embracing their abuser. They're cozy. The Herodians have designs ultimately on Caesar's throne, but the Sadducees want everything to stay just as it is. Don't disturb anything. No, no, please, let's use Caesar's coin. It's fine. What's the big deal? I don't understand why all these religious people are getting in the way of the coin. 
it's just a coin. That's where, that's where the Sadducees are in a way very pragmatic, but it's not okay to be pragmatic at the expense of God's teaching. On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. So they reject the teaching of the resurrection because a resurrection implies judgment. If it is true that there is a resurrection, not only does it mean that what they have today could be disturbed by a redistribution of property on that day, but the fact that there will be an accounting on that day in the teaching of the resurrection means that what they have could literally be taken away as a consequence for disobedience. If you like what you have and you don't want to be accountable, you don't want it taken away, you don't want anything redistributed because of some rule in the Torah that demands that you share the wealth and the land, whatever it is that's bothering you, bottom line is you don't want God interrupting your control of your property. So it suits you to imagine that there is no resurrection, meaning there is no judgment. This is it. What I have is what I've earned, and it's a credit to me, and the poor are poor because there is no credit to them. Now what you say, Father, reminds me of a common Muslim idea. You can't trust anyone unless they believe in God and the final judgment, knowing that there's some kind of account for your actions. Now, the Sadducees, a peculiarity of their understanding of Torah is that they believed in the first five books, the books of Moses, as canonical, and everything else, both the prophetic writings and the other writings, were not canonical or were not as canonical as the first five books. So they took the books of Moses as central and the other books as less important. And so that's how there was no belief in the resurrection, because they said there's no resurrection in the first five books of the Bible, in the books of Moses, in the original Torah. So therefore, it was less important, because those are the books that came from Moses, and Moses is our teacher, everyone else is secondary, which there's a point to that, but we believe in the rest of the Hebrew scriptures as canonical. We can see from this writing that the Sadducees stood apart because of this resurrection. It doesn't say the Sadducees who don't believe in the prophets, but who say there is no resurrection. So, Father, what you're saying, I think, is exactly what we're supposed to key in on as hearers of this text. This is about the resurrection because it's about a final account. Now, the Sadducees are going to play some games with this. We're going to see what those games are, but it's the standing up that happens on the last day when God calls everyone to account. Asking, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Here we have an appeal to the text of Deuteronomy. As you said, the Sadducees are looking to the five books specifically as their reference. And it's interesting that the instruction they care most about pertains once again to property and the household name. Deuteronomy's concern 
is to do justice toward the brother who died and to make sure that his name continues in the land so that his wife would not be abandoned and so that his children could inherit his name. Remember that people think about this in terms of wealth because that's how we operate in the modern West. But the name of the household was more precious than wealth. Certainly, wealth was a product of the household for the sake of the community so the family could live. But Deuteronomy is concerned with the continuation of the name of the line. Now, the question in Matthew when we're talking about the continuation of the line, which name and which line is truly at stake? When we talk about the name of a man's household, which name does that pertain to? This is the gospel which teaches that God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. So what's going on here, Richard? Yeah, I think I'm starting to see a pattern here, Father, because what I'm noticing is that People ask him a question of, how far do we have to go to perform our duty? That seems to underlie a lot of this. Okay, you know, like in the last scene. Okay, yes, we need to give lip service to Caesar, but how far do we really have to go? Do we really have to give up all our money? You know, I know we're supposed to forgive people, but how far do we really have to forgive people? At what point am I off the hook? And here, you can sense this because they're saying, okay... You owe a duty to your brother, but to what extent? Because in this context, you're saying, okay, the child that I have with this wife inherits my brother's property, not mine. That first son won't inherit my property. I have no heir at that point. And without an heir, now I need to produce another heir. Otherwise, my line goes fallow, goes dead, right? How much do you owe this brother? How much do you owe his widow? Until you can say, okay, I did what I needed to do. This is where Jesus keeps catching people up because they're always assuming that there's a limit beyond which they don't owe any more. And that's where Jesus keeps pounding because there always is more that you owe. Why? Because God gave everything to you in the beginning. They're not concerned with the continuation of their brother's household for the sake of the common good. They are operating like the sons of Cain, who are interested in building dynasty, which requires that they set a limit on their charity towards their brother's widow. Because you can't take care of the widow and build a dynasty. There's a tension between the line of God through his promise to Abraham and the line of Cain, which comes through the building of buildings and institutions and the protection of possession and wealth. They are speaking like city builders in a gospel which erases the city and converts it back to pasture land, as you said last week. I'm just trying to show how these concepts, Richard and Matthew, are interwoven. Now, there were seven brothers with us, 
And the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So, <laughs> you know, seven is the number of fullness, which means that this was really a cluster. <laughs> and they're setting up this legal discussion, this legal quagmire, to try to figure out who's going to get stuck with the bill and who's going to benefit from the inheritance. That's how they view the resurrection. They view it in commercial terms. And this is what Paul is critiquing in 1 Corinthians, incidentally. We always talk about it as realized eschatology. It's when we try to anthropomorphize the resurrection and look at it from the perspective of this life. You can't do that. When you look at the resurrection from the perspective of this life, you can't but turn it into a discussion about the lottery. That's why people who engage in realized eschatology end up declaring war on the neighboring village. Because the resurrection becomes about victory, and victory is about wealth and possession and control. It's the very same problem with Jerusalem. God in Ezekiel is proclaiming the Jerusalem above, to which Paul appeals in Galatians. They're still talking about the Jerusalem below, and that's why they care about who gets the inheritance. Father Paul loves to critique every Bible on this, every translation on this, but the question here is actually about the seed. But strangely, the translations, both my King James and your translation, Father, they're not consistent with how they translate the seed. In King James in 24, it was a question about raising up seed for his brother, but then in 25, it says, married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother, but it's actually having no seed. So the question is, who does the seed belong to? Does the seed belong to this brother or that brother or that brother? Who does the seed belong to? And once I put it like that, Father, you and I know where this is going. <laughs> We've been hearing this since Genesis. Father Paul has been telling us this every single Tuesday for I don't know how long, that the seed belongs only to God. So we already know, thanks to Father Paul, if only the Sadducees had listened to Father Paul back in the day. <laughs> but they, it's all about who possesses the seed. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh, last of all, the woman died. I love verse 27 because there's a bit of insecurity in their telling of the story. Well, all the brothers died. Does that mean the woman's going to get it? Heaven forbid. What to do now? Who's going to benefit from this? They're terrified. Even though it's a concocted story told to entrap Jesus, it betrays their fears. They are terrified that they are going to lose what they have, and they don't want to miss out on gaining more. And so the way they mock the teaching of the resurrection is by constructing a narrative built around their dysfunction. Verse 27 is really interesting. Why add that last bit, last of all, the woman died? First of all, thinking about the seed, for 
a farmer, the seed is the investment. You spend all your money on the seed. And then you sow it. You plow the field and you sow it. Maybe you plow, maybe you don't actually. But you've got no fertilizer. You've got no irrigation. So you have to count on the rain to water your crops. And really, you just have to go through and just do the best you can to make sure that you get a return on this investment. That's what's important about the seed. It gives you that return on investment because then you get the fruit from it. And from that fruit, you buy the next generation of seed. In this one, when it's talking about the next generation, it talks about that seed because you're investing in the next generation. But just imagine you have to go and use your seed on your neighbor's field. Then they get the fruit. And hopefully you've got enough seed left over so you can also seed your own field. Once, like you were saying, Father, once the woman dies, that's the end of the metaphorical field. Okay, there's no more field. There's no more planting. All the planters are dead and the field is gone. What is the account we're going to have at the end? So we have the seven brothers, which means, yeah, this is going on for a really long time. And no one had any seed after. So the dilemma is every brother invested in this field to raise up seed to their brother and no one got a return on the investment. And this is like what you're saying, Father, this is the anxiety. Because imagine, look at all that the Sadducees had sacrificed so that they could be good with the Romans. And then to say like, "Eh, you know, we'll see what happens. It's up to God. I mean, it's like saying we're going to put all this effort into supporting a presidential candidate and then at the end of the election say, okay, and whoever God wants, God picks. You're like, wait a second, why did I put all that money and effort into campaigning for a candidate? I want to return on this. I want to see what happens. I got something invested in this. That's how we speak in English. Here, the question is, who gets the seed? Who gets the fruit? Because there's this anxiety that these brothers won't have any fruit. That these brothers invested the seed in vain with nothing left over. And the anxiety is, well, what is God going to do with that? In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Now, people hearing this verse will make fun of it because it's written in such a way that you would make fun of it. Because the Sadducees are obviously set up as the foil in the stories. But here's the problem. Verse 28 is American Christian piety, period. Verse 28 is what is preached in every church. What's my prize when I die? What do I get? What's in it for me? Why should I follow the Bible? Why should I do what Jesus says? What do I get in the end? This is contemporary piety in a nutshell. So it's a very important verse to confront if you're serious about the teaching of the Bible. When you talk this way, when you ask the question, why should I follow this teaching? You're behaving like a Sadducee. To speak of the resurrection 
as a place where you get a prize in the end for being good is to reject the teaching of the resurrection, which is about accountability. When Matthew tells you that your reward is in the heavens, he's saying, in effect, that you can't talk about the reward right now because it's out of your reach. It's in the heavens. And the Sadducees want to bring the reward down into the mud, which is what modern Christians do. They want to draw a limit around their duty and say, once I fulfill this duty, I have my scorecard checked off and I can go and sit and have a scotch and watch some Netflix because I'm done. I notice in the translation something that betrays the point of view of the Sadducees that I think is problematic. In your translation, Father, it said, for they all had married her. But the King James actually translates literally, which is they all had her. They all had her. Right. They all had her. They all possessed her. It doesn't mention marriage. It's interesting that they just have to fill that gap and not deal with what the text is saying. I think that this betrays actually the problem, one of the problems, of the Sadducees' argument, which is they really are thinking of this wife as a field. So who owns the field in the end? Everyone sowed their seed in this field. So in the end, who owns the wife? Father, you mentioned Deuteronomy. She's a widow. You owe her everything. Your duty doesn't end. You don't own the widow. In Deuteronomy, you take care of the widow because if she calls out to God for help, God will help her and the judgment will be on you for not helping her. The Sadducees betray a problem in their assumptions that a wife is there so that you can sow your seed in your field so that you can have your children to pass on your inheritance. You see what I keep repeating? I keep repeating your when all of it belongs to God and you take care of the widow because God has placed a duty on you and you raise up seed to your brother. That's where your actually counts, your brother, because God has placed a duty on you to take care of the next generation of your brother, okay? So this passage in Deuteronomy is all about your duty to others, and the Sadducees are trying to figure out who gets the prize in the end. It's interesting because the word eschon, eschon aftin, echo, means possess, which underscores your exegesis of the text, Richard. They want to possess her, but the name is God's name in the land. The city is his city. The line is his line. The inheritance is his inheritance, his seed. It all belongs to him. The land is his. The woman is the property of God. This is their miss. This is their mistake. Just like Caesar cannot sit on the throne of Christ, and the Herodians cannot sit on the throne of Christ. In the same way, this woman doesn't belong to anyone but God. The field is God's possession. 
and his seed does what he wants his seed to do in that field. Their mentality of possession is anti-scriptural. It's not a question of the ismos. If people are going to hear this and start trying to do their silly ideological math. Are you a socialist? Are you a capitalist? Who cares? You build your socialism. You build your capitalism. Knock yourself out. We went through this in the 50s when Florovsky was worried that the Americans would be frustrated with John Chrysostom because he critiqued the ownership of property. He wrote an apology explaining that Chrysostom wasn't a communist. Well, of course he wasn't a communist or a socialist. I mean, come on. Why even bother? If people think that way, it would be better for us on that day that they round us up and arrest us for being communist sympathizers because we trust in the resurrection and the judgment. What are we defending? Come on. It's very clear that no one owns the land but the king, and the king is God. So relax. Don't worry that the bank owns your house. The bank doesn't own your house. <laughs> the Sadducees, the name the Sadducees comes from the Hebrew word sedek, which means righteousness. So these are the so-called righteous ones who forget that God alone is the proprietor, God owns the land, God owns the seed, God owns the next generation, and you're allowed to inherit it if it is according to his will, but you never own it. If you happen to possess it for a time, it is because it is a gift offered to you by God, but the resurrection signals that there is going to be a judgment on whether you used it according to his will or not. That's why in Deuteronomy, it's the rearrangement of God's wealth under the stewardship of the individual household name and the individual household line, not for the sake of dynasty, but for the sake of the common good. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.